one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 908 for the week of Monday, August 7th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. Ready to roll up our sleeves and get into some news. we got a lot to, to cover this fine evening. I can't wait. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be here as always. Thank you. Good to have you back. We missed you last week, but we are back and ready to go. So let's start things off with the most recent launch, and that was sending three crew members to the International Space Station. On July 28th, 2017, at 11.41 a.m. Eastern Time, which was a nice 9.41 p.m. evening time launch, sent three crew members to the International Space Station aboard a Soyuz rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. A few hours later, the three crew members were aboard the International Space Station. Those three crew members aboard the Soyuz MS-05 included Commander Sergei Rezinski, NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik, and Italian astronaut Paolo Nespoli. They successfully made it to the International Space Station, getting ready to spend their six months or so aboard the ISS. Yeah, Sawyer, they were on the uh, the quick track, if I recall. This was the six-hour uh, and they're there kind of track, wasn't it? Correct. They've kind of gotten away from the two-day one and gotten more towards the fast track six to eight hours, and I think they even got there a little early. Yeah, the the interesting part about that one, Sawyer, is that they launched uh, at, I guess it was like almost the end of commuter time here in the East Coast uh, of the United States. And by the time folks were ready for happy hour that, that fine day, they were arriving at the International Space Station, ready to, to go ahead and, and start work. So I thought that was kind of interesting. During a work day, uh, a normal work day here, here on good old planet Earth, these guys were already uh, ready to go. And, and uh, you know, they were <laughs> their commute was was far more interesting than, than yours or mine would be. But uh, uh, just. It took them the the same amount of time, the same you know, that that you and I would be at an office to get to the ISS. So uh, just mind blowing. Oh yeah, I mean I love the fast track one, and I'm sure they love it too. So they're not in that small, tiny, cramped Soyuz capsule for two straight days. I believe they they were kind of alternating for a little bit, Sawyer. I know that uh, uh, the the game plan there was to try to go ahead and do these fast track things a little longer, but they are kind of tougher on the crew because it, it is a longer day for them. But I'm sure uh, if you take a poll amongst uh, crew members going to the, the, the ISS, 
I think yeah, I'd vote for uh, for that long day rather than uh, than spending a couple of days in uh, in that cramped Soyuz. So the three of them will be joining the three crew members already aboard the International Space Station, which includes cosmonaut Fyodor Yurchenkin and NASA astronaut Jack Fisher and Peggy Whitson. Of interesting note, since Russia has now cut back to two crew members as they await for their next module to launch, supposedly sometime next year. Uh, this is only the second time in ISS history that there will be four crew members in the U.S. side and only two in the Russian side. The other thing, too, Sawyer, is I'm going to just venture into the world of politics a little bit. I know that the United States has put on sanctions for Russia, and I'm not going to go into the reasons why that that's the case. But it, I, I want to just go ahead and underline and read several times that this does not repeat, not impact any of the ISS operations whatsoever. Uh, those will, will continue to go forward, and there's there's literally no impact at all to any of the NASA and Roscosmos uh, kind of programs. True. Very good to point that out. But it was a gorgeous nighttime launch, and best of luck to all the crew members up there who they've got a busy work time ahead of them. And having four crew members in the U.S. side, I think it's going to help a lot with science, which there's a lot of science going on in case you missed our last episode on the International Space Station Research and Development Conference, which highlighted some of that. So uh, take a listen to that if you hadn't, because there's a lot going on. And even still, this new crew is already getting busy as they have a spacewalk on the Russian segment currently scheduled for August 17th. And that's going to actually play a little bit into our next story. And that is we have two upcoming launches within the next week. It originally was supposed to not be that way. One of them was originally early August and then late August. However, if you recall, the Tedris-M spacecraft tracking data relay satellite uh, was originally scheduled to launch August 3rd. However, there was a problem during processing and the spacecraft was damaged, its S-band antenna. As a result, that launch was pushed back. When it came down to decision time of which took priority, CRS-12, the next SpaceX resupply mission, or Tedris-M, Tedris got the AOK for the number one slot. They were originally going to be targeting August 10th, and then decided to push that back to August 20th. As a result, they then decided to move up the SpaceX launch to the number one slot on August 14th. Now both of those are out the window too. They have both been moved up. So if you can figure out what happened in there, after the damage, Tedris was supposed to go first, then they decided to push it back, and as a result, SpaceX moved theirs up. So right now, the SpaceX CRS-12 mission is currently scheduled for August 13th, and the Tedris-M launch is currently scheduled for August 18th. Since the initial recording date, that has now changed even more. SpaceX is now once again targeting August 14th as their launch date. The reason I mentioned that this relates to our previous story with the spacewalk is that SpaceX must launch their rocket by August 15th, two days before the Russian spacewalk. If it does not launch by then, it will be delayed until, as NASA has been saying, well after that. So we're talking probably a week or two after of a delay. So Sawyer, the um, just just to make sure, the first off, my head is just already kind of 
It's you a know, lot of information. I know. Really, and, and I and I'm like, and, and I'm listening to this, and I'm and I'm sitting here. You know, who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> Imagine trying to keep track of this, especially since Talking Space will be at these launches. Myself yeah. being the representative, trying to imagine the <laughs> shuffling hotels and keeping track of all of this. <laughs> well, you're, you're probably among friends in our uh, in our uh, bre- press brethren there, but <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and just venture to guess. Sorry, the reason why it is uh, for safety reasons, correct? They're going to just go ahead and and just make sure that you're not having docked operations during an EVA, correct? Yeah, that that's correct. They want to give time for the vehicle to get there and to dock and so that way the crew members can focus on preparing for their spacewalk and then focus on their activities of grappling and opening and starting to unpack the dragon because as we learned last episode there's a lot of time sensitive things that as soon as it's open need to get off and into freezers or into experiments. Exactly. And the way I'm looking at this, as far as the uh, the Tedris M side of the house on this, and this is a NASA release uh, dated today, August 7th, 2017, the day we record this, um, that the uh, Eastern Range has approved August 18th, if I'm not mistaken, at uh, with a 40-minute launch window opening up at 8.03 a.m. That is correct. It is a 40-minute launch window, which is very nice compared to the SpaceX launch window, which, if you recall, is a one-second window or just instantaneous. Right, and if I'm reading this right, there was some sort of unrelated electrostatic discharge incident, too, that also had to be resolved on the Tedris M side of the house. That has resumed. The processing has also resumed, and um, uh, I believe Tedris M has been moved from fueling and now is being mated to the uh, to the uh, vehicle launch adapter. So... Uh, things are progressing with that. And, of course, our friends over at SpaceX are making sure that Dragon is is set to go. Which, keep in mind, these are the first launches after the range had been closed for about a month just due to normal operations and orbital issues and things like that. So the range is fully operational. This was just a regularly scheduled downtime for the range. And it sounds like it's going to get ready to pick up. But uh, two big launches coming up in one week. Yeah, indeed. So there's a lot of SpaceX launches coming up, uh, a few of them out of Vandenberg, a few of them out of Cape Canaveral. Uh, August 24th, they have one out of Vandenberg with Formosat 5. Uh, there's also OTV5, which is the X-37B. Uh, that is scheduled to launch September 7th out of the Cape. September 27th is the no earlier than date for SES-11, which has now been announced that it will be flying on a previously flown Falcon 9 booster. If you recall, they were one of the first ones to fly on a previously flown booster on a previous mission. And then there's the Iridium Next satellites coming up as well on September 30th, those out of Vandenberg. Whew, that's a lot of launches for SpaceX coming up in the next month or so. Yeah, and and let's not forget, too, looming somewhere in the headlights and all of that mess is the maiden voyage of falcon heavy that is as of right now elon has announced scheduled for november of this year sometime in november in fact on today's recording date august 7th elon Musk tweeted out a new updated visualization of what the launch will look like and it has all three of the main cores returning back 
to land, even though he had said two of them would probably land on land, one on a barge. So we'll see. I just need to see how that's going to work and how that's all going to play out. That's a lot of stuff going on there, but uh, if they're able to pull that off, and I believe uh, just to temper everybody's expectations on that, Musk basically said if we leave Pad 39A still in one piece, he'll consider the, the thing a success. So, you know, he's he's basically trying to manage expectations for Falcon Heavy. Yeah, you and I talked a lot about that last week when he first made the announcement at the conference I was at, ISSRDC. But what's amazing is between all those launches in that time period, especially the ones at the Kennedy Space Center, that launch pad, launch pad 39A, where they're still all launching out of, is going to look very different as work continues to remove the rotating service structure which was used during the space shuttle era to help get payloads in and out at the launch pad and protect the shuttle ahead of its launch. That is being dismantled, and it sounds like it should be gone by the end of the year. Is that what we're hearing? Yeah, that's correct, Sawyer. Uh, This, according to a Spaceflight Now article I'm looking at, dated August 5th, that is uh, the uh, remote service structure is slowly but surely coming apart. Uh, SpaceX is kind of managing that right now. To be honest, I I've, I can hear al- already the yelling and screaming out there and and the lamenting and gnashing of teeth. I remember watching Pad 39B get dismantled and all of the uh, the gasps and oh my God's being uttered in the uh, the press pool when we were walking over there because I, I recall. Uh, seeing in the background this this you know big crane pecking at the um, the remote service structure like some sort of you know large raptor or bird just just ripping the thing to shreds. But to be honest with you, Sawyer, the uh, remote service structure, at least from a SpaceX standpoint, is um, well, it's an impediment. It's an impediment to operations, and I can totally understand why they wanna wanna get rid of it. Uh, a lot of people, you, there's a lot of gnashing of teeth going on, but it served its purpose. But the, the orbiters aren't flying anymore. They're now in museums and, uh, you know, out with the old and with the new, so to speak. A lot of people are saying, well, why don't you just go ahead and try to, you know, you know, have like these commemorative medallions for the, 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 uh, the scrap metal that's falling off. Well, the the U.S. government, I believe, owns that, that scrap metal and it's actually just going to be sold for scrap. Uh, so they're really I don't think there's any any real plans to uh, uh, you know, have any commemorative medals or anything like that. It was the same thing for pad 39B when they were tearing that down. So, I mean, if it makes processing and flows easier for SpaceX, such is the case. I mean, we don't still have the launch towers out there from Apollo. They're not still hanging out at 39A. When those were done, those were removed and, and came the RSS. And now that that's done, those get removed, and in comes any other items that SpaceX may need for their heavy support or for uh, Crew Dragon support or anything like that. You know, not for anything. SpaceX is leasing the pad, and they they've got a a right to to use the the pad however they see fit at this point. And they still have almost fifteen years left on that lease. Yeah, exactly. Every now and then, I have a conversation with somebody about the shuttle program and and generally it's people that have spent a significant portion of their life uh, if not uh, all of the shuttle years in Florida and hear them say you know I never did get to see a shuttle launch (laughs) yeah well time flies time moves on 
as does the infrastructure of the Cape. That's very well put. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing of, oh, they're still launching shuttles? No. Oh, so NASA's shut down? No. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> there's more than just shuttle. And I'm sure if you're listening to this show, there's a 99.9% .9 chance that you're aware of that fact. Uh, if not, well, it's always good to listen to new things and find new shows. But um, again, it's time to move on as uh, SLS works its way to its first flight no earlier than 2019 now. We push on and we continue on and we move towards progress. And if that means changing what 39A looks like, well, we have pictures of what it did before. So if you're that nostalgic, there are pictures, there are videos. Now, if they go and rename KTTS, known more commonly as the Shuttle Landing Facility, SLF, I might get a little cranky because I kind of like the name. I like the logo and I like a nod towards some phenomenal history. Agreed. Take that up with Space Florida, folks. They they <laughs> currently, I believe they currently have the uh, the leasing rights on uh, on the uh, SLF. Correct. So uh, Space Florida, if you're listening, don't go changing that name. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we have the SpaceX resupply mission to the ISS currently scheduled for August 13th, but Orbital ATK has their next resupply mission to the ISS scheduled as well. Theirs is currently set for October. The latest date that I've personally heard, as was going around the ISS RDC conference, is October 11th for the OA-8 launch. This one will be aboard an Antares rocket out of Wallops Island, Virginia, carrying the Cygnus resupply vehicle to the ISS. They recently announced that part of the reason for it taking so long to launch this is because they're waiting on a part from NASA. Is that what you've heard, Gene? Yeah, Sawyer, this was part of the second quarter uh, results that uh, uh, David Thompson, Orbital ATK's chief executive officer, indicated that uh, they are currently on schedule to carry that out if they needed to in September. But he said, quote, I think NASA's going to delay probably until October to provide a full cargo load. Uh, he also said that there was one specific uh, piece of hardware or a part or a subsystem for the space station that NASA had asked Orbital to fly on the, on the mission. And to quote him, he said that the cargo element was going to pace the launch. However, he didn't go into a lot of specifics in and around that. He probably didn't have that information handy during the the the, uh, the event. But he basically said that it's running a bit later than previously expected. So there's a specific part that NASA wants to fly on OA-8. And it's just, they're just waiting for the customer, uh, essentially, over at Orbital ATK to go ahead and fly the next uh, Antares launch out of Wallops Island. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I just recently spoke to a, uh, a high-ranking official within Orbital ATK. I'm going to protect their name for their sake. Um, and we were in a conversation. They were mentioning that part of the reason for the delay on this is because their resupply vehicle is so big. And if you look at the size, it can carry a lot more than the Dragon. The downside being it can't necessarily bring it back as quickly because of their lack of down mass capability. Apparently, the problem is filling the thing. They were saying that it's so big that they don't have enough experiments and enough supplies and enough everything to warrant launching it as soon as they do. Plus, you have all these other SpaceX missions happening now, and... Apparently, they just didn't have enough to fill the craft, which is 
I find extremely fascinating. What they have to do really is just wait for the client, which in this case is is NASA, and making sure that uh, they could fly a full load. And this is actually really a, a, an interesting problem to have if you're orbital ATK. It means that the space station itself is in a pretty good posture at this point to, uh, you know, from a supply standpoint. I remember earlier because of the loss of, uh, of CRS-7, uh, this was the whole reason why, too, orbital ATK was flying on on Atlas V. The Atlas V can carry a little bit more, so, and as such, they filled uh, uh, Cygnus to the gills and made sure, uh, made sure that Swan was, was carrying a lot of stuff over to the International Space Station. And that actually, those two launches, which they really, really overstuffed, uh, were, you know, really put them in a pretty good posture. Uh, and really put the ISS in a pretty good posture for you know, both from a science standpoint and from a supply standpoint. So it's an interesting problem to have if you're orbital ATK to make sure that uh, uh, you can fill up your your spacecraft with uh, with logistics uh, going to the International Space Station. And again, that's part of the person I spoke to. That's part of what they were saying is the space station is doing really well right now. But keep in mind, their customer isn't just NASA. It's also CASIS and NanoRacks and all these other companies that send up experiments to the ISS. So part of it is also, you know, making sure there's room for all these experiments on the ISS and getting all of them approved and up in time and things like that. So it's supplies as well as science. So it's a combination of filling up both of them. And it's, again, it's just fascinating to me that they can't really fill it in. And one way to really understand this is if you go into the brand new Google Street view of the International Space Station, uh, you can go through the ISS uh, like you would on Google Street View, and it allows you to go inside the resupply vehicles, including the Dragon and the Cygnus. Go inside the Dragon, and then go inside the Cygnus, and you'll understand just what a size difference there is. Admittedly, part of that size difference is that SpaceX does have the trunk, which is the unpressurized segment, but it's just fascinating to see how big that thing actually is from the inside. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, this isn't the only thing that uh, Orbital ATK has over on the horizon. Uh, they still have their uh, their next generation launch vehicle that they are working on with uh, with the United States Air Force. Uh, that that is that's still humming humming along. They're expecting a, a joint go no go between the Air Force and Orbital uh, later later this year or early next year concerning the next phase to move into full scale development of uh, of these particular boosters. Also, they have they have something on the on the books called the Mission Extension Vehicle, which feeds into satellite resupply. Uh, and satellite servicing that too is uh is humming along quite nicely according to uh david thompson they've finalized the design and they're now well in the construction phase of the uh the first mission extension vehicle and they hope to put that into service uh somewhere uh around 2018 and they hope to start beginning paid operations in 2019 and again this is for uh, a, a satellite servicing uh, satellite, basically something that will go ahead and refuel your satellite and put it back into a in, into the proper orbit that uh, 
you would need to to go ahead and continue operations. So this would probably be a boon for uh, for satellite owners as well. These are the few. These are just a couple of the programs that Orbital ATK is working on right now. And don't forget, they still have their other launch vehicles as well. I mean, one of them is actually coming up very soon, and that is the Minotaur rocket, which the Minotaur, in case you're unaware, is a four-stage solid-only rocket. Uh, It has currently launched out of every single launch site in the U.S. range area, eastern western range, with the exception of one, and that is the Kennedy Space Center. That is about to change. It's even launched out of Kodiak, Alaska, and now it's finally getting its debut out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. That launch is currently scheduled for August 25th, with a launch window extending four hours into August 26th. Currently 11.15 p.m. to 3.15 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. That will launch out of Slick 46 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. That will be carrying the ORS-5 mission, for the U.S. military's operationally responsive space program, hence the ORS. It is also known as SensorSat, which will scan for other satellites and debris to help the military track objects in geosynchronous orbit. Yes, Sawyer, the Minotaur is an interesting vehicle. It, um, it's, as you pointed out, it's about four stages. It's made up of three uh, Peacekeeper motors. Now, if that sounds familiar to somebody in the audience, it's because the Peacekeeper was at one time an ICBM, or an intercontinental ballistic missile. And I believe there, there's a lot of paperwork you've got to go through for, uh, for a Minotaur launch because, because of treaty and so on and so forth. But this, this is kind of a, a, an interesting little beating swords into plowshares kind of story for for minotaur um it's as you pointed out too this is the first time that it is is launching out of the kennedy space center or out of um cape canaveral air force station so uh it'll be kind of neat to go ahead and and see that and then uh you could actually say minotaur has been really probably one of the most versatile launch vehicles that have been out there because of the places it's been able to to go ahead and deliver deliver its payloads from Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's simplistic, but it works. And uh, also of interest is that Space Launch Complex 46 has not been used for an orbital launch since January 27th, 1999, carrying an Athena-1 rocket. So it's been a little while. It's uh, quite unique. Again, you don't see that many solid-only rockets and... uh, it's exciting to see it moving around and getting more opportunities. And if this goes well, I believe they'll have another launch in three or four years out of there. And they've got now pretty much every single launch option around the United States. And you guys can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but it, but didn't a Minotaur fly uh, the Laddie mission to the moon not too long ago out of uh, Wallops, I think? That is correct. It was a Minotaur 5. Yep. So, again, a good uh, and interesting little uh, swords into plowshare stories. Absolutely. And keep in mind, this is a Minotaur 4, meaning it only has four stages. The other one had five. But nonetheless, uh, it's going to be uh, quite the interesting launch to see. And uh, wishing Orbital ATK and everyone there the best of luck with that launch. And we'll be sure to keep an eye on that. Again, August 25th is the current launch date for that. So speaking of smaller rockets, um, we have two bits of news based on some smaller rockets as well that are just getting their start up. One of those is the Vector rocket, 
which we've talked about before, and if you've been to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, you may have seen a model of it. Uh, it recently completed its second flight, but this time it was no longer out of the deserts. It was located in rural Georgia. Yeah, Sawyer, this was the very first launch uh, out of the Camden Spaceport in Georgia. Uh, this, again, to, to go ahead and reiterate what you were talking about, the Vector R, R rocket, it's only about 40 foot, foot tall, and it did, in this instance, it reached its intended altitude, according to what I'm reading here from aerospacetechnology.com, of, uh, of, I believe it was only about 10,000 feet. Um, the, uh, the, the launch was uh, uh, partially funded by NASA, and I believe it was approved by our friends over at the FAA. Uh, this marks the second launch of uh, of the Vector booster. Uh, this was, I believe, the first one. Sawyer was out of the Mojave Desert, but this one was was a first for uh, for the Camden uh, spaceport in Georgia. This is again a, a group of former SpaceXers that sees a uh, a market. Uh, for uh, for both either suborbital or orbital cubesats, uh, and hopes to go ahead and 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 kind of you know do an end run, if you will, around SpaceX and really really try to try to get the cubesat market. So there are still cubesats hitching a ride both on on SpaceX and on other boosters, including uh, Antares and and Cygnus and. Um, yeah, even SLS, but um, uh, for you know regular run-of-the-mill CubeSats, th this could be theoretically a pretty good option, and they're hoping to, to drum up some business in that, de in that department. Also of real interest uh, is if you watch any of the videos posted of that launch, it literally looks like it's on a dirt road in between a whole bunch of trees in the middle of nowhere, and yet here's this amazing rocket taking off again in the woods of georgia on what looks like a dirt trail it's hysterical and amazing at the same time and apparently recovery didn't go too well, well. yeah i mean it, if anybody launches model rockets like i do uh sometimes you have a little difficulty trying to find the uh <laughs> trying to find the booster and uh that did happen with uh with vector r though it kind of it came down it, it parachuted down and they just had a little bit of a hard time getting to it in amongst the brush and the trees and all that but finally the the, the vehicle was located and all's well that ends well uh but yeah, I mean, Sawyer, that I, I had the same impression. I was looking at that, and I said, "Wow, that looks awfully familiar." <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's uh, quite. <laughs> Spaceport is not the term I would have initially used for that area, but I'm excited to see what happens with it. And uh, yeah, it's another launch site, so that'll be fascinating. Now, there's another company that's also trying to get into that viable market for uh, cheap CubeSat type launches, uh, and that is Rocket Lab who had their first big launch out of New Zealand a short while ago, which made it into space, but not into orbit. Apparently, it could have made it into orbit, and it came down to one simple piece of software. Doesn't it always when you're writing software code? <laughs> yes, Sawyer. Um, uh, Rocket Lab basically indicated that a third-party contractor that had uh, was, was supporting the Electron launch well, they kind of messed up on some ground equipment and misconfigured it, and uh, that translated uh, 
radio signals from the rocket into data used by the range safety officer. And supposedly, according to what I'm reading here from Space News, that resulted in a, quote, extensive corruption of received position data, resulting in data loss that led to safety officials to trigger the rocket's uh, flight termination system. And apparently, according to the uh, chief executive of Rocket Lab, Peter Beck, said it's an awfully easy fix. And he said you literally tick a box in, a, in, in, in the software. Or so you, you basically put a checkbox in, in, in the software, and that basically eliminates the problem. But in this case, it was not checked, apparently, and, well, you know, boom. Is it just a checkbox that says, do you want your rocket to go to orbit, yes or no? And you forgot to tick yes, is that all it is? <laughs> well, I don't, know what, I don't know what the software configured, but uh, that's colloquially expressed, Sawyer, but essentially correct. Um, what uh, Mr. Beck indicated said, it's more a question of working a little bit more with their contractors and making sure that Rocket Lab has got better oversight over, over contractor activities than, than a, a rewrite even of any of the software. Um, they didn't say who the contractor was, but uh, uh, they, they feel that they've demonstrated that uh, Electron is, is still a viable uh, vehicle uh, during the test flight. And they still want to see if they could fly as early as uh, early as sometime in October. And uh, what they hope to do with this is, if that is a rousing success, they really want to go move it directly into uh, commercial operations for 2018. So look out again. Um, you know, grab the popcorn, folks. We're 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 gonna. Just and so just sit back and watch. The United States really, really wants to grab back what it once had, which was the uh, the lion's share of uh, you know launch, launch services market. So let's just keep our fingers crossed and see if we can, we can we can wrestle it back from the rest of the world. But I'll tell you, Sawyer, the competition is going to be even tougher now, not with just with SpaceX, but also you know you still have Ariane Space out there. You know, Roscosmos isn't going to go anywhere. They still. You know, even though the, the, their market, their share of the market is rather small right now, they're not going to go anywhere. And you have also uh, the Indians coming into this as well. Uh, the Indian Space Research Organization is also trying to get a good part of that market, plus, you know, the Japanese. So brace yourself. It's going to get busy out there. Exactly. It's very interesting that you mention area and space because, you know, they mainly focus we tend to think on larger rockets as well and um that's actually part of what we're going to talk about next uh besides the fact that they just recently had a successful uh vega launch as well which is another one of their rockets their 10th successful vega launch we had talked a few weeks ago about the bepi colombo mission and partly about how much we love the name but that was a mission that is scheduled to launch to mercury that ESA mission is scheduled to lift off October of 2018 aboard an Ariane 5 rocket. Problem is, the James Webb Space Telescope is currently scheduled to launch October 2018 aboard an Ariane 5 rocket. Ariane 5 is not as quick as SpaceX or as quick as ULA, and they have at minimum one month between launches, which means one launch is going to have to move. One of them 
has a window to meet to reach Mercury. One of them, well, it's been delayed so many times now, I don't know if it has a window still. So it sounds like James Webb is getting another pushback due to a scheduling issue Yeah, it sure looks that way, Sawyer. As you mentioned, uh, the BepiColombo mission would definitely take precedence over that. Uh, the reason, as you had pointed out, is indeed the a launch window that, uh, you know, between the two, I mean, it's a no-brainer. And I have a feeling that, uh, indeed, Webb is going to get pushed, at, pushed back one more time. Hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, we'll have a good Ariane 5 launch for the BepiColombo mission, which would really, really pave the way for uh, for the James Webb Space Telescope. The thing is, though, Sawyer, too, you've got to transport that thing down, and that actually... I don't know that that that, that slight delay, man. I might actually go ahead and play into to making sure that the vehicle is in good shape and and ready to go. So it might give them a little bit more time to make sure that this baby is 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 good to go. Because you have to remember too, the James Webb Telescope is very different from Hubble. You, there, there's not going to be a chance for a servicing mission. This has got to go right. And there's a lot of mechanics around getting that thing set up once it's out there. And all of that's got to work like clockwork, because if it doesn't, there just isn't a halfway house. It either, either works or it doesn't. Exactly, because we're going out to one of the Lagrange points, which is past the moon, and there's no real rockets that can go out there right now. Uh, Bepi Colombo, I should point out, is a joint operation between ESA and JAXA and is actually made up of two spacecraft, the Mercury Planetary Orbiter and the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter, so MPO and MMO. Uh, it is speculated at this point now that as a result, James Webb will push until 2019, the earliest, as opposed to getting pushed to November or December of 2018. Poor James Webb just keeps getting pushed further and further and further back. I mean... It, at least it's going to get launched. At least it's better than, you know, having a ridiculously large telescope and then not being able to launch it or not being able to man it, which is a problem that China is supposedly having. Apparently, the fast radio telescope in China, which is the world's largest radio telescope, has no one to run it? Yeah, so there was an article that appeared in, I believe it was the South China Morning Post on August 4th. And this was kind of backed up by uh, Eric Berger out of uh, Aris Technica uh, here in the U.S. That uh, China basically has world's largest single-dish radio, radio telescope, period. It, it's basically dwarfed Arecibo. However, they don't have anybody to run this thing. And it's not due to salary, trust me. Um, the salary, I believe adds up to about uh, 1.2 million dollars US uh, it is you know you get free housing out of the deal and 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 all, all this uh, the requirements are 20 years previous experience you have to have taken a lead role in a large-scale radio telescope project before uh, you have to have extensive managerial experience and you have to have held or currently hold a senior position or a senior prof professorial position 
at a world-class research facility or university. Now, that really whittles the, the folks down. In fact, I'm, I'm sure people are trying to review all of this in their head, and they're, they're, they're thinking, geez, I could probably count the amount of people, right, that would be qualified for that on my right hand here using all five digits. But then comes this article this morning out of China via the uh, Shanghaiist. They're saying that despite media reports, and I'm going to quote directly from the article, Despite media reports China that China is desperately looking for a qualified foreigner to run to run the the fast telescope the Chinese Academy of Sciences has denied that there's any such job search going on I'm not too sure what to make of this either it's going on or it's not one or the other the uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences said that uh, they have not found a foreigner for the job because it was never looking in the first place. And it claimed that the uh, position uh, for the chief scientist was filled back in 2016 when the facility was completely uh, completed. Uh, we'll just have to see uh, as things progress if somebody is actually finally named to this position. That That's certainly a unique one. Um, a <laughs> story we're going to have to follow. Um I, I hope there's someone working it. If not, I hope they can find someone qualified. Just to clarify a couple things, too. No, we're not looking for little green men with this with this telescope. We're actually looking at the uh, the radio spectrum of the sky. And, you know, is, is SETI part of this? Oh, maybe. But um, it is not the, the only purpose for this facility. Exactly, yeah. Uh, NASA had its own issue with the whole looking for little green men thing, if you recall. Uh, NASA had put out for a planetary protection officer, which everyone thought, oh, that means protect the Earth from aliens. Well, no, it has more to do with protecting from any microbes that may, you know, come back or from any missions or that might infect other samples, things like that. So it's talking about protecting Earth from microbes, not green aliens. Although uh, there was an applicant who put in for that position, and it was a young child from New Jersey who applied for the role of the planetary protection officer. The job, if you get it, has a six-figure salary of somewhere between $124,000 and $187,000 per year. So nine-year-old took to some pencil and paper and uh, put in an application and actually heard back. Yeah, Sawyer, this was, a, this was a, a, an enterprising young man by the name of Jack Davis that wrote, uh, wrote to NASA basically saying, and I'm going to quote directly from the NASA webpage because they have the, a photograph of the letter. Dear NASA, and the letter is dated August 3rd, 2017. My name is Jack Davis, and I would like to apply for the Planetary Protection Officer job. I may be nine, but I think I would be fit for the job. One of the reasons is my sister says I'm an alien. Also, I have seen almost all of the space and alien movies that I could see. I have also seen the show Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and hope to see the movie Men in Black. And I'm also great at video games. <laughs> I am young, so I can learn things and learn to think also like an alien. And he writes sincerely, Jack Davis, Guardian of the Galaxy, fourth grade. Well... Needless to say, this got the attention of uh, uh, Jim Green, 
who is the director of uh, planetary science over at NASA and no stranger to this particular audience. He wrote the following back to, uh, to Jack, quote, Dear Jack, I hear you are a guardian of the galaxy and that you are interested in being a NASA planetary pro protection officer. That's great. Our planetary protection officer position is really cool and it is very important work. It is about protecting Earth from tiny microbes when we bring back samples from the moon, asteroids, and Mars. It's also about protecting other planets and moons from our germs as we responsibly explore the solar system. We are always looking for bright future scientists and engineers to help us. So I hope that you will study hard and do well in school. We hope to see you here at NASA one of these days. Sincerely, James L. Green, Director, Planetary Sciences Division. So they really got a pretty good kick out of this letter. And the way they handled this, I thought, was really, really ingenious. They they handled it like, here's a young kid that wants to go ahead and try to, you know, learn something else and really try to try to get out there. And they're, they're trying to inspire him to, to bigger and better things. And I, I thought uh, Jim Green handled that pretty well. But that's a great little kid there and a great job by NASA responding back to him. And uh, these are the nice stories we like to hear where NASA's, you know, getting back to kids and inspiring and, uh, you know, not turning people down just because their sister calls him an alien. Yep. And Jack, who knows, maybe uh, in a few years you're going to be writing to some nine-year-old uh, as uh, NASA's uh, director of planetary science. So hang in there if you're listening. Great. Heck, as a 13-year-old kid, I saw people talking to astronauts in space. I'm like, I'd love to do that one day. And here I was helping with that earlier this month. And then, you know, going and covering rocket launches, I wanted to see one. I never thought I'd get to go up close to them and cover them and hang with astronauts and become really good friends with these people and get to bring you guys such amazing launch audio and things. So you never know what's going to happen. Just put your mind to it and uh, see what happens. And in this case, uh, and our young friend from New Jersey here, great job. So the final story I think is probably our most important story and the timing of it could not be more important as well. For those of you that live in the United States and North America for that matter in general, on August 21st of this year, a solar eclipse will happen. We want to go over the very important safety things and some tips and tricks if this is your first ever solar eclipse, and even if you have some good reminders as things have changed in the last few years in terms of what is safe and what is not for viewing a solar eclipse. So first and foremost, if it is not totality, do not look at it without protection. You must use special solar filters, solar viewers, or number 14 or darker welder's glass. Now, I was asking this earlier, and Mark, you had the answer to this. There's something very special that it has to say on the glasses, right? Yeah, NASA has the following criteria, and they say it should meet all of these. Uh, it should have certification information with the designation ISO 12312-2. That's an international standard that these viewers should meet. It should have the manufacturer's name and address printed on the product. Uh, don't use them if they're older than three years old, if they have scratched or wrinkled lenses. Definitely don't use them if they're homemade filters. And ordinary sunglasses, even the very darkest ones, should not be used as a replacement for eclipse viewing glasses. So if you can't get it all together in time for the 21st and the eclipse, 
look at photos, look at video offline. Be safe. Also very important, if you plan on taking pictures or anything of it, do not look at it through the viewfinder at all. Do not look at it through binoculars or anything. Use a filter over that as well. And there are companies that sell specific solar filters for cameras, for telescopes, for anything like that. You can seriously hurt your eyes even looking at it through a camera. Also, in particular, if you do have a camera or something like that, try not to use the viewfinder if it has one, if you can get it on a screen of some sort. That helps your chances of hurting your eyes less, as keeping in mind that's a bunch of mirrors focusing that light. In addition to that, if you are using these correct solar viewing glasses, put them on before you look at the sun. It sounds like common sense, but look down at the ground, put them on, then look up at the sun. When you're ready to take them off, look down again, and then take them off. That way you don't blind yourself just trying to take your glasses on or off. Sounds common sense, but worth mentioning. And I repeat once more, once totality hits, if you are in the path of totality, then you can take the glasses off. But only during totality. If you are not experiencing totality, or once totality is over... Those glasses must go back on if you don't want to damage your eyes. Yeah, and Sawyer, uh, just to, to let our audience know, if you visit uh, NASA.gov, one of the things that they have over there is a total eclipse you know, sort of survival guide, if you will. They've got a whole web page associated with this. It is eclipse2017.nasa.gov. A lot of the, the safety tips that we've uh, mentioned on the show thus far are there. If you go to eclipse2017.nasa.gov forward slash safety, uh, a lot of the, the, the safety tips are there. Also of note, if your glasses are fine after this, you can use them to look at the sun at any time afterwards. If your glasses say you shouldn't look through them for more than three minutes at a time, and that you should discard them if they are more than three years old, those warnings are outdated. As long as it says ISO 12312-2 on there, you can use them more than three years on, you can use them multiple times over, and you can use them for the entirety of it. You don't even have to take them off if you so choose. That was adopted in 2015, so if you have ones that have that exact ISO safety rating, you're fine. You can look at it for longer, you can reuse them before, after, however you would like. And if you don't have them, don't forget, you, there are examples online of how to make pinhole projectors and other ways to still get to see it. Right, and uh, just just a, another another deal too here, Sawyer. If if you're one of those poor souls like me who have to wear prescription uh, eyeglasses, keep them on. You could put the eclipse glasses over them, or just simply uh, you know hold hold them in front of the the your your eyeglass view. But uh, again, look away and then pull the glasses off just as uh, both Mark and Sawyer indicated. So yes, uh, enjoy it. Be safe with it. Uh, I will be in South Carolina for totality of this event. Uh, I'm excited to see it. Uh, hopefully be able to try and get some pictures of it. Uh, but I will be posting some of that to Snapchat as well, which uh, of note, keep an eye out on Snapchat. Talking Space will be working with Snapchat uh, for some of the upcoming launches as well as the solar eclipse. 
So using Snap Maps, you can find it. It will most likely be in the Florida location. And if all things go well, hopefully it will be international beyond that. So keep an eye out for Snapchat information from Talking Space through Snapchat themselves of all these cool space events going on. This is really a, a historic moment. This is the first time, I believe, um, since, oh, Sawyer, correct me, since about uh, in quite some time. That, that something like this has happened on the continental United States. I believe it has been since the 70s at some point. Uh, I don't know the exact date. I could very well be wrong on that. But I know the next one will be 2024 in the United States, although that will cover a lot less than this one will. Yeah, I'm going to have to wait for that one. But uh, um, this one is, is going to be throughout the entire continental United States, and that has not happened for quite some time. I should say, not even the continental, the entire United States, Hawaii and Alaska will experience partial eclipses as well. Oh, that's right, yes. So uh, be safe out there. We want all of our listeners to come back unscathed and safe with spectacular views of the eclipse. And for any of our listeners uh, that may be visually impaired, NASA has something for you as well. Yes, Sawyer, that's, that's correct. Uh, NASA has developed, in fact, they're sending out to... Uh, several locations. Um, they're sending out to schools, library for the blind, um, science centers, museums, state libraries, etc. And of course, NASA centers. They about 5,000 copies of a book that was developed by the um, NASA, I believe it was developed out of, uh, out of NASA Ames, uh, which is basically a tactile guide called, quote, getting a feel for eclipses basically to allow everyone to learn about what this upcoming event is all about and hopefully uh to experience what this event may quote look like close quote um it's designed to according to the nasa website to depict basic concepts about the interaction and alignment of the sun with the moon and the earth during a during a solar eclipse and it is designed to help uh, the visually impaired, but also because of the tactile feel to it, it could still give somebody who flat out doesn't have that kind of impairment um, an idea of what, what to expect and, and what to see. So again, th I thought this was really, really cool of NASA to go ahead and make sure that everyone enjoys the uh, uh, this event because it is an event and and it's it's it, it's it is a sort of a once in a lifetime thing for for this particular eclipse and uh, everybody should still uh, enjoy it and and be entitled to to understand uh, uh, really the the majesty that the universe is exactly shout out to NASA for their inclusivity as always with that and uh and again, enjoy it, be safe with it, and uh, hopefully everyone will come back with no injuries or anything and just spectacular views of the eclipse. And again, if you can't be anywhere near the eclipse, or if you do not live in the United States or North America, this will be live streamed all over the place. So it's definitely worth checking out. And again, they have links to those live streams and more at eclipse2017.nasa.gov. And so with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. First off, a big thank you to John Stroud and everyone over at Medium for listing Talking Space as one of their top 11 space podcasts to listen to. And if you came to us as a result of that article, thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed it. Uh, so a big shout out and thank you for that. And thank you for joining us here, Gene McCulka. Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. One more thing real quick. Uh, 
uh, Space Center Houston has got a Kickstarter out there to uh, try to restore the old Moker, the uh, Mission Operations Control Room, where the Apollo missions were controlled from. So if you want to go ahead and visit Kickstarter, go ahead, and if you're so inclined, throw them a, a couple shekels. Oh, yes, a great cause. And thank you all for joining us. Mark Ratterman. See you next time. <laughs> And we thank you as well for listening. We have some action-packed episodes coming up. Keep in mind, next episode we will be covering CRS-12, possibly Tedris M as well, the Solar Eclipse, which you can follow along with on Snapchat using Snap Maps, and uh, Gene will hopefully have some stuff from Podcast Movement as well, and so much coming up, and we hope you'll stick with us. Until next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.